during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, why do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your teacher, your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If I am not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Hello everyone, it's great to see you here today, and again, welcome to those joining online. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn, if you're not already there, to the passage that was just read, First John, or sorry, John 13, and we'll be working through that passage in just a moment. And uh, it's really good to see you here today. I was here a year ago, and uh, two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Gary was at Woodside, and uh, spoke about the relationship between Wallenstein and Woodside, and uh, we feel the same. We just uh, really so appreciate you guys here. We are cheering you on uh, as you are a light for Jesus in this community, uh, except when your team is playing our team in hockey or baseball. Um, <laughs> that's a different story, but we're just uh, so uh, encouraged by you guys. May you continue to shine the light of Jesus in this area. This summer, I have been working through three books by today's leading atheist, Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, some of you might be familiar with his bestseller, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, where he, with a atheistic worldview, without God in the equation, looks at how we got to where we are, where we came from, and, and why we're here, and, and, and a number of things. And it's a very, his books, the three books are very thought-provoking, um, on that hand. On the other hand, it's interesting, he lumps in Christianity with all the religions of the world, and he makes this statement a few times in his books that Christianity is a myth. There's no evidence whatsoever for it, and uh, he's either misrepresenting the Christian faith, or he's ignorant of the Christian faith, because even 
atheists who are still not believers in Christ will say there is evidence, it's a, it's a matter of looking at it, uh, the Christian faith is, is based on or hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the most investigated event in human history. And so you look at the case for the resurrection, you look at the case for Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled, you look at the case of archaeology and how with ongoing excavations it confirms over and over again scripture. You look at all of that evidence and to say there's no evidence for Christianity, uh, that's simply not true. And uh, for me, you, you, sometimes when you're reading a book and you don't agree with something, you just start to burn inside. Okay, I'm burning inside. But that is somewhat the case in our Western culture today, that people are, in a sense, closed to any truth about Jesus, about Christianity. They dismiss it. There's others who would go even further and say, there is no such thing as absolute truth. It's my truth and your truth. Truth, again, is anything that accords with reality. So this is my reality. I'm going to make it what I want it to be. So what does Wallenstein Bible Chapel do when they're in a culture where many people don't want to listen to the truth about Jesus? What does Wallenstein do? Well, we have an example 2,000 years ago from the early church. The early church, for the first 300 years of existence, went from a small little group of followers to many followers of Christ. They turned the Roman Empire upside down. Rodney Stark, in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, he's a sociologist, I'm not sure if he's Christian, but he looks and he tries to make sense as how this small little group of people with no money, no power, no weapons, turned the empire upside down. This little group of people went preaching and proclaiming the truth of Jesus. He rose from the dead. Every single word he says is true. He's God come to us. You need him to forgive you of your sins. He's coming again. They took that truth, and they were met by many people that didn't want to hear it, but yet there was something else that they took as well. They took the love of Jesus to the people. Wallenstein is to be pl a place where truth is made known, but where love is found. In the early church, two marks of Christian love. One is it creates safety. When Christians gather together and it's the real love of Jesus, people aren't coming expecting to be judged and condemned. They're not coming where someone's going to, you know, shame them. Okay, there is a place for us uh, to, to just deal with sin, to restore people, but it's a safe place. And the second mark of Christian love, where Jesus is, is that you'll find diversity, that it's different uh, groups of people coming together. And that's what the case was in the early church. Women flocked to the early church. Women before Jesus uh, were just a notch up from cattle and property. They weren't equal. But in the early church, they were treated as equals. Children. There was a lot of infanticide in the Roman Empire. But children were valued. Slaves. Those that didn't have the economic means. Uh, they were shunned. 
but here they were welcomed. And it goes on and on how the early church brought the love of Jesus and more and more people. You, you couldn't close the doors. You just, people were coming. And so for Wallenstein, for you here, I want to remind you that Wallenstein needs to be a place where you guys make the truth known. And we're so grateful you're doing that, but a place where his love is found. And so grateful for you guys doing that as well. In this series, Why Jesus, we pick it up today in John chapter 13. And John, instead of talking to us about the night before the crucifixion and focusing on the bread representing the body of Jesus and the cup representing the blood of Jesus, he doesn't do that. Unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he doesn't focus on that. Instead, he focuses on the love of Jesus in particular, how it's expressed through Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. We ask the question, why did Jesus wash his feet? So today we're going to look at what the love of Jesus looks like, and then how you and I, Wallenstein, Woodside, how we as followers of Jesus can give away this love. And if you're new to the faith or you're thinking about the Christian faith, just want to remind you that um, being a follower of Jesus doesn't start with becoming. I got to become more loving. It starts with something else. So may God speak to you as we work through this passage. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. John chapter 13 is the dividing part of this book. The first 12 chapters of John cover the first three years of Jesus. So John is telling us, Jesus went here, Jesus said this, Jesus did this, and he just moves right through those first three years. Come to chapter 13, and chapters 13 through 19, everything is slowed down. He's going to describe for us in the next chapters what took place before the cross. And you'll see that as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all put the brakes on when they get closer to the cross. And in chapter, chapters 13 through 17, we, we see now the, what's known as the upper room discourse. discourse. Jesus has been uh, ministering in public. Now he's going to talk in private to his followers. And John wants us to know that Jesus loved them to the end. He loved us to the end. He's going to talk about the love. That's the theme of this chapter. But notice two other words, the word hour and power. Jesus knew that his hour had come referring to the cross. That's why Jesus came. For the Son of Man uh, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His purpose was, come, was to die on the cross. But notice, too, he had all the power. He ruled over everything. And in that day, John and the other disciples grew up in the Greco-Roman world where males in particular were working their way up the ladder. And the more power you had, the more you use it to your advantage so that you would have people serving you. So Jesus, the one with all the power, does something with it. Verse 4. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist, 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, get get the next slide. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. So during the Passover meal in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem, Jesus takes off his tunic. He goes, he gets a basin, fills it with water, has a towel, and he gets down and he starts to wash the feet of the disciples. In the first century, they walked on dry, dusty roads, and it was a mark of hospitality. When someone came into your home, someone washed the feet. It was typically the servant. None of the disciples were going to do it. It was beneath them. Jesus goes and does it. And Peter, when Jesus comes to Peter, he in a sense rebukes Jesus. No, you're not going to do that. You're not going to wash my feet. This was the same Peter who three years earlier saw Jesus teaching on the shores of Galilee. In Luke chapter 5, Luke records this. Sees Jesus teaching. After Jesus teaches, he gets into a boat and teaches from the boat. Then he says to Peter, Peter, I want you to put out uh, the nets for a catch of fish. And Peter, the fisherman, he says, yeah, no, Jesus, we fished all night. Um, I know a little more than you. But nevertheless, because you say, I'll, I'll do it. Puts out the net. There's this large catch a fish that's so large that James and John, next boat over, have to come and help. They bring the fish to shore. Peter says to Jesus, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Peter got a glimpse of the majesty and the power of Jesus. For three years, he witnessed that power. He saw that love. And so when Jesus comes in this lowly position to wash his feet. He's like, that's beneath you, Jesus. I am not worthy of you washing my feet. Jesus responds, in a sense, Peter, you have to let me serve you this way. And again, John places the foot washing just before the cross because the the foot washing foreshadows Jesus serving Peter and us on the cross. Peter, you have to let me serve you this way. Verse 9. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. Again, Jesus, what he's saying there, just as physically we have a bath and then we might have dusty feet, we don't need to have another bath, we just wash our feet. Spiritually, when we come to Christ, his cleansing blood cleanses us from all sin. We don't need to keep asking Jesus to save us again and again. He saves us, but we confess our sins when our feet get dirty. So Peter, I don't have to to wash your whole body, I'm doing your feet, Verse uh, verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. 
I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. When Jesus said, you also are to wash one another's feet, some people think that Jesus is establishing another ordinance in the church. So as a church, uh, we practice baptism where someone goes public with their faith in Jesus, a uh, one-time thing. Then we also practice uh, the ordinance of community, communion, this ongoing um, a representation that I belong to Jesus and I'm remembering what he has done for me. But we don't believe that there's a third ordinance that when we gather together, we should wash one another's feet. Um, why is that? Because if you look at the New Testament, there's no recorded practice of the New Testament church ever doing that. They baptized, they celebrated the Lord's Supper, but they never washed one another's feet. Instead, we believe that Jesus was setting an example for us of being a humble servant. Of being a humble servant. That you get low to serve other people. And by the way, too, I don't think most of us need anybody to wash our feet. Would you like someone this morning? Wash your feet. You haven't had a pedicure in a while, right? You're just like, oh, I'm not sure about that. Okay, we don't do that. It's to be an example. For those of you that might be note-takers, four things about serving. First, Serving others is never beneath you. As a follower of Jesus, doesn't matter how important you are, doesn't matter how popular, famous you are, doesn't mean if you're an elder in the church that others are going to serve you, it doesn't matter how much money you have. If you call Jesus your Savior and Lord, there's nothing beneath you. And sometimes that means doing things that are very menial and maybe not so glamorous. But when you know the one who went from the highest, the one with all power, and went to the lowest, he works in your heart, and you serve in those positions. Psalm 113, the psalmist says, the Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look at the heavens and the earth. And then the psalmist goes on to say that this God who is above his creation, who is holy, other than, he stoops to look at the poor, at the needy, at the barren woman. He cares and he wants to help. But Paul in Philippians 2 will take that even further and tell us that that same God who stoops down to look at man God, what, what's man that you're mindful of him? That that God enters into his creation and not only washes the feet of his creation, but will go lower than that, the lowest you could go in the Greco-Roman world, that he would die a death on the cross. The cross was horrific to the Jews. It was despised by the Greeks. You couldn't go, you were cursed of God. You couldn't go lower. And yet Paul says, that we're to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had in our relationships one with another, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage, to be used uh, for, for his glory, but for his, yeah, for his own purposes, but rather he took upon himself the form of a servant. He made himself nothing, became like us, and humbly died for us. He became obedient uh, to death, even the death of the cross. So nothing is beneath us when you understand what Jesus did for you. 
Secondly, serving others is not about who they are. It's about who Jesus is. Picture this, they're all around the table and Jesus is washing their feet. But who's at the table? John wants us to know, verse two of John 13. He points out that Judas, the one who would betray him, is at the table, which means Jesus washed the feet of someone that really didn't deserve it. Judas would then, Jesus in a few moments, will call him out and he'll go into the night, but he was there and Jesus washed his feet. How many of you, are there people in your life that might be a little bit unlovable, somebody at work, somebody in your extended family, somebody that just like you don't have the warm fuzzies for? You're like, they, they're just not deserving of it. I don't need to serve them. Serving others is not about who they are. It's about Jesus. Third, serving others includes letting others serve you. Peter says to Jesus, you're not washing my feet. You're not going to serve me this way. And Jesus says, Peter, unless you let me do this for you, you can't be with me. You have to let me serve you. Uh, some of us, we do have a hard time letting others serve us. Maybe you're here today and you're part of the Wallenstein uh, church family and you just feel that you're unworthy of people serving you. Can I tell you, you're not. You're made in the image of God. You're the beloved child of God. And don't rob someone of the blessing that they will get from serving you. So sometimes when we feel unworthy, we're like, oh, don't serve me. But also, we can, because of pride, kind of keep people away. I don't need you to serve me. Right? I used to be there as a pastor, a young pastor. You know, sometimes I'll, I always think of, of older ladies, but men too, I'm sure. Uh, I remember them, you know, I'm praying for you, pastor. And for me, in my mind, I'd be dismissing it like, you know what? You can pray for other people. Like, there's other needs. Pray for them. Now when some, someone says, I'll pray for you, pastor, I'm like, thank you very much. Because sometimes our pride says, you know what? I got it together. I don't need help from anybody. You have to be vulnerable and let people in and say, you know what? I could use you to serve me. Thank you. And in your relationships, one with another, this is so important that you're not keeping people away saying, I'll serve you, but don't serve me. But rather, you're letting people into your life. You're vulnerable. Uh, case in point for my wife, Lisa, and I is that we... Uh, uh, had, uh, we have close friends at Woodside, but there is a, a couple um, that we are very close to, and they moved away. And over the years, we've uh, kept up our friendship. And about a month or so ago, I, we were at the Pinery Provincial Park, and uh, it was evening, and we had the lawn chairs, and, and we were uh, chatting away when this, call him a park ranger, I've never seen him before, this guy's all dressed up, pulls up in his truck, and he's a young guy, and he comes over and he says, hey, how you doing? We're like, hey, how you doing? And he says, um, I just want you to know, I could hear you guys three campsites over. <laughs> and we're just having a time with this guy. Really? Uh, you'll see there's no alcohol here. <laughs> we said, there's no loud music, and you can hear us? We were laughing so hard, I guess, that we could be hearing three campsites over. When we get together with this couple, we laugh, we enjoy each other's company, but we also cry together. We also pray for each other. 
There's times I've let them in on my weaknesses and my shortcomings and my needs and my struggles. And my wife has let them in on hers and they've let us in on theirs. Vulnerability, you go deeper. And so we're serving them, we're praying for them and different needs in their family and they're praying for us. Serving others includes letting others serve you. And then number four, serving others always brings a blessing. There's coming a day in your life when you see Jesus and you realize, I don't regret serving others. Maybe you're helping out in the nursery and at times you're like, oh, is this worth it? Maybe it's with children helping out there. Maybe it's youth ministries we heard earlier and you're listening to the youth and caring for the youth. Maybe it's taking that step to be a life group leader. Oh, is it really worth it? Maybe it's giving a ride to someone to church. Maybe it's baking something for someone. Maybe it's saying, I'm going to pray for someone and you actually pray for them and you're serving in all of these little ways and sometimes it's like, is it really worth it? Look what Jesus says, verses 16 and 17. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. If you serve others in the name of Jesus, just like he served you, you will be blessed. Serving always brings a blessing. Serving others takes time. It takes energy. And sometimes we serve out of gladness and we're, you know, hey, I just, I'm full of joy, full of life, things are good. You serve out of glasses. There's other times you serve out of obedience. I don't really feel like helping out in the nursery day. I don't really feel like doing this. But every single time you serve, it brings a blessing. And sometimes we see the blessing here as we journey through life. Sometimes when we serve others, it frees us. Instead of being negative and can't let something go, freeing helps us. It releases us from the person as we share the love of Christ with that person. Serving others helps us not to become selfish. If you want to be miserable, make sure you follow the dictates of this world and be selfish, okay? But when you serve, it brings a blessing. And sometimes we can see it here, but it's going to come whether you see it or not. Every cup of cold water uh, will be rewarded. Jesus said he's bringing his reward with him. You'll never regret serving other people. Now, we ask the question, well, how can we serve other people? Back to verse 15, look what he says. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Serving does not start with you. Love does not start with you. Serving does not start with becoming. i got to become a servant. Serving starts with beholding. Loving others starts with beholding. You behold Jesus and what he's done for you. You receive that by faith, and then you serve, and you give. And then you go back, and you receive again. And then you serve again, and you receive, and then you give. The Christian life is a daily beholding Jesus. If we get too busy for Jesus, if we're not daily thinking about the cross, I don't know about for you, but as I get older and I see that, man, things are, you know, time is getting shorter and things are going to be stripped away, one, time, one, uh, one day it's just going to be me, 
No family, no money, no car, nothing. It's all gone. It's just me and Jesus. And I go through life every day just mindful of what he did for me, not just washing my feet, but dying on the cross for me. And as I behold that, I'm like, Lord, use me. I want to be a blessing to other people. Love starts with beholding, not becoming. It starts with receiving, not giving. And just a reminder that it means times that you will not always feel like loving others and serving others. Look what Jesus says in verse 34. After he talks about serving, gives the illustration of his love, he then calls out Judas, and Judas goes into the night. He goes to the religious leaders to betray Jesus. And then just as the discussion turns, Jesus is going to talk about the cross, and he says to his disciples, I'm going. You're not going to be able to come with me. Peter says, oh, Jesus, uh, I, I can go with you. I'm willing to die with you. I want to go with you. And uh, Jesus says, well, actually, Peter, shortly before the rooster crows, um, you're going to deny me three times. And it's in that context that Jesus then says this, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Peter, you're not coming with me because I've got a purpose for your life, and that's to love other people as I've loved you. For you at Wallenstein today, Jesus has a purpose for you, to love others as he has loved you. Notice it's a new command up until that point for 1,500 years or so. It was Leviticus 19:18. love your neighbors yourself. They lived in a world, in the Greco-Roman world, that was divided, it was angry, uh, people were lonely, and it was kind of, in the Greco-Roman world, I might love you if you love me back, if it's worth it, but for the people of God, no, you're to love others as you would love yourself. You take care of yourself. But then Jesus, he says, no, there's a new command. You are not the standard. I'm the standard. It's a higher love. And the verb that many of you would know in the Greek is agape. It's a sacrificial love. Today in our culture, love has been distorted, redefined. It's all to do with feelings. This love of Jesus is to do with actions. Sometimes we feel like it. Sometimes we don't. But it's, Lord, you did that for me. I want to do that for you. I know I've done this practice before, and I encourage you, maybe if you've never done it, to memorize uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus not only does love, all those action verbs, but Jesus is love. And so you can put Jesus in there. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not envy. The challenge is, is that when you get to yourself, Dan is patient. Dan is kind. Dan does not envy. As I'm going through life time and time again, I'm like, I have a disagreement or something in my life, and I'm like, I don't feel like loving. I don't feel like serving. But my mind goes to Jesus. Okay, Jesus. And I always use the word now, opportunity. This is an opportunity for me to grow. Yay, yay. New command. That's why it's a command. 
Jesus will give you what he commands, the capacity. But there's times you're not going to want to do it. Look at the world. They're not serving one another. You're not going to you just live for yourself. No, it's a new command. And again, it's beholding him as I have loved you. We have three kids, and before they, they um, went to bed when they were younger, we don't tuck them in now, they're in their 20s, but when, when they were younger, uh, we tucked them in, and often my wife and I would, would end with these words. Mommy loves you, Daddy loves you, Jesus loves you most of all. Parents, can I encourage you to speak those words over your child? My prayer for my children to this day is not that they would love Jesus more. My prayer is that they would get a glimpse of Jesus' love for them. Because when you behold his love for you, that you have a future and a hope, you are going to live forever. Pinch me, this is, can't be true. It really is true. When you behold that, Jesus changes you through his spirit so that you're just like, Lord, help me to give it away. Receive, give, receive, give. That's why it's important to be at Wallenstein week after week so that you are beholding Jesus together and then you're loving one another. What's Jesus' vision for Wallenstein? That this would be a place where you are learning to love each other. You're moving towards each other. Are you moving towards people here? That this is a safe place where you are learning to see the good in each other. Listen, there's lots of condemnation and cancel, canceling out there, but this is a place where, yeah, you might, might have faults and you're working together, but it's a safe place. You see the good. You're learning to enjoy each other. You're learning to show compassion to each other. You're learning to, can I say this, forgive and reconcile with one another. You're learning to cheer each other on. You're learning to support each other. You're learning to be accountable to one another. Why? Because the love of Jesus is bigger than anything that might separate you. It's bigger than any educational differences, generational differences, gender differences. Can I say this too? It's bigger than any political differences. Come on now. Okay, right? The ways of the world, the spirit of the world, it's creeping into the church. Jesus says, that's not my love. My love is greater than that. And in my name, you can work together so that this unbelieving world, if they don't want to listen to truth at the present, they will still be seeing people that love. May Woodside be a place where truth continues to be proclaimed and made known and bless you guys here, but may also be a place where the love of Jesus is found. Jesus ends with these words, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus has a purpose for your life that you become more and more loving and who knows how he is going to use you. Why did Jesus wash the defeat of the disciples? It's because Jesus is love. Love is not just something he does, it's who he is. And if you get closer and closer to Jesus, love is not just something you do, it'll become more and more of who you are. We're going to take a time now during the service to behold this great love, and I invite you to stand, and before Murray Martin comes and prays, I'm going to invite you to just behold. So please stand. <clears throat>